Hello and welcome back to Happy Porch Radio. Welcome to season seven. Today we spoke with Madison Wright from Pentatonic. Pentatonic is a circular economy consultancy focusing on product design. They are dedicated to rapidly accelerating the shift to a circular economy by helping companies change the way they design, manufacture, sell and recapture products. And we had a great conversation with Madison today talked about all sorts of aspects of shifting to circularity on very many different levels. We were kind of all over the map, but in a really good way. Yeah, I think that reflects both all the work that Madison herself is involved in, but the broad range of work that Pentatonic do as well. And it's kind of cool. A theme that is definitely consistent in season seven is how the people we're speaking to are working at that system change level. Yeah, So they're working with multiple other organizations or bodies or whatever had to sort of create that multiplier effect, which is pretty exciting. But also it means that they have a very clear vision on the challenges, on the difficulties, on the ridiculous wrongs. Um, you used the word obscene when we were talking about fashion waste, and I think that's 100% accurate. So I liked the way Madison talked about that, didn't shy away from the negative, but also was able to talk about actions and clearly living that action in terms of the work she's doing as well. Yeah really like so much positivity sort of radiating from Madison in this conversation which is wonderful to see when we're talking about things that can face such big challenges and can be an overwhelming amount of work and change and shifts that have to take place yeah she had so much energy and passion for it it was wonderful that's one of the powerful things about thinking about regenerative circular economy thinking and how we should be looking at these, at the positives of change, the way Kate Rayworth talks in Donut Economics about Thrive and the way that more and more people are talking about some of this language and the change we need to make. There's real huge positives by moving in that direction and we're not moving there fast enough and all of those things and ridiculous problems to overcome, but yet there's no need to go and live in a cave because that's the only option. So I think that's really cool. And I also liked, we talked about so many different things and the different skill sets and the different multidisciplinary teams within uh, Pegatonic doing the work they're doing. And I think that's really important. And a personal sort of theme for me is that, you know, as engineers or software developers or any sort of skill, how important it is to take that experience and skill and get involved in this kind of work. And within that diversity, we sort of honed in on a specific niche or a smaller niche. <laughs> It's not really a niche, it's huge, like the fashion industry. But for those of you listening who are interested and intrigued by circularity in the fashion industry, keep listening, because there's loads of interesting stuff. Definitely. And so, without any further ado, let's meet Madison. Hi, everyone. My name is Madison Wright, and I am a circular economy specialist at Pentatonic. And I've been working there for about a year and a half now. Pentatonic is a really cool company, and we're focused on essentially a design and tech consultancy operating within the circular economy space. So our main goal is really to help some of the biggest brands just make circular economy initiatives easy for them. So that could be actual product design, that could be decommissioning materials that they've created already, or just analyzing their supply chain. So come at it from all angles to make it as easy as possible for them. So that's the highlight, the snippet. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, let's dig into that. But first of all, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great. Let's set the scene a little bit. What led you to this point where you're working with Pentatonic and on this kind of mission? Definitely. I mean, I think to me, sustainability 
really started at such an early age. I mean, I was you know, gardening with my dad or uh, growing up in Seattle in the US, you're just surrounded by nature all the time. And so really wanting to preserve that. But then I also worked at a restaurant and I just saw the massive quantities of waste and thought this is absolutely ridiculous and like we can do better than this. So that kind of drove me to finding this master's program in Sweden because I really wanted to learn from the best. And I thought, you know, Sweden's the place to go. So I did a master's in environmental management and policy. And I just really loved researching and reading and really just trying to be a sponge and learn as much as I could about all of these different sectors and, you know, how far we really need to go to be better in every sense of the word, whether it's carbon emissions, whether it's actual like material recapturing and reuse. So I think that that kind of led me to Pentatonic. Pentatonic is a really small company. It's 30 of us and we're growing very rapidly as companies, I think, realize, oh no, we've made all these commitments and now we need to actually make sure we have the tools to accomplish them. So I think as we get closer to this 2050, 2030, these huge goals, not goals, but these huge years, these huge milestones that have been set out. I think it's brands are starting to pay more and more attention and consumers are as well. So I think that kind of consultancy element where we can get down and dirty in their data and really figure out what's going on and how we can help them is really exciting. But then also having a diverse group of team members who we have engineers, we have material engineers, we have designers, we have everyone kind of coming together in their different sectors to make a product or help inform different procurement teams and things like that. So I, I liked that part about the company. It was very diverse in just the people working there, but then as well as different expertise, just so that I could learn as much as possible. So I think it, it, Pentatonic was just the, a win-win as a company. So I, I'm really lucky to be working there. It's an awesome place. Thank you, Madison, for sharing your story. Maybe you could also give us a bit of background on how Pentatonic got started, because I think when it began, it didn't really look like what it looks like now, right? Definitely. Yeah. One of our first projects that we started was furniture-based. So Starbucks was trying to figure out how they could use their plastic cups and have them not end up in the landfill. So we came together and figured out how to make a chair that could be in one of their cafes. So using that material in a way to make like the actual furniture like lining and make everything out of one material because I think that's one of the the really difficult things is you have a hat or a chair that's 18 different types of plastics and then it makes it really hard to even disassemble or recycle because you don't know what they're made of and it's this huge thing right so I think that was that's kind of been our bare bones of like how can we create products that have the end of life in mind so I think that's kind of starting to become a bigger and bigger thing but that was kind of where we started was okay let's design a hanger out of the waste from the fashion industry let's design a chair made from this waste stream and keep it within this company so i think that even with burger king i think that was one of the the coolest things that drew me to pentatonic actually was in 2019 uh, these two girls in the uk were just saying this is ridiculous we don't want all these plastic toys they just end up in the landfill and so Pentatonic was able to take apart these little minions, those little plastic ones. But there are so many different types of plastic and just this tiny little minion. And so then we were able to take that apart, figure out what was actually inside, and then melt it down into trays that could be used in their stores. So it was called the Meltdown, and it was really exciting. So it's that kind of, I think, really the deep understanding of like what it takes to actually build products that is why our consultancy is doing so well, right? Because we have that experience of 
developing an entire supply chain and really figuring out what things are made of and how they can be improved. So I think that really sets us apart in this space because we're not just a consultancy. Like We understand the background behind how a product even comes to market in the first place. So I think, uh, yeah, we've come a long way in the in the last like five years. So, and it's been really exciting to see so many more brands come to us and say, hey, we saw you, your work with this project. We'd love to have a similar thing happen with our company and that sort of thing. So we've been in many different sectors like insurance, food and beverage, fashion. So it's been, everyone's really needing our help. So it's great, but uh, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. So we need, <laughs> we need all hands on deck. <laughs> yeah. So the consultancy stuff, is that something that came sort of secondary to this level of like product design and what was the motivation to move in the direction of the consultancy work? Yeah, definitely. It was a great question. I think it became just what companies were asking us, right? Like they, instead of saying, you know, how can we make a a product? It's super cool. I think that was kind of where they maybe entered with our communications. And then we were like, okay, well, you know, what are your different waste streams? And then they would be unsure. And so then it became, okay, so like, let's analyze that waste stream. Okay, you have a lot of waste coming from here. Is there a way we could, instead of having like a seasonal beverage that has the sticker on it, that's like only winter edition, blah, blah, could be remove that seasonal element so that you can still continue to sell it. And it doesn't just end up in a warehouse somewhere or that kind of modular thinking of like, okay, if you're making furniture, let's make parts that can be swapped in and out. Like that kind of thinking, I think it just, it came naturally really of them wanting a product, but then us saying, okay, that like, we'll, we'll do that. But then also we can help your design teams. We can educate and really prepare them to make better products in the future so that you don't have this problem. So, and then, yeah, I think it just, people gave us their data and said, help, like, what do we, how do we set our goals? How do we achieve our goals? <laughs> so I think it just kind of was a situation that we worked with them in the past and they were like, okay, we need to figure this out. Or it's just new clients being like, hey, like, where do we even start? So I think that just came out of kind of knowing the ins and outs of the industry and being able to respond to that. But I think right now, like we're we're really investing in the consultancy element just because it's it's really exciting to see brands care so much. And so, yeah, we're really expanding that part of our business for sure. That's really interesting when you say brands care so much. I'm wondering how much of that is new or is that feels like, oh, there's a thing that's happening in this sort of a zeitgeist new as in literally mm-hmm. this year, kind of post-COVID kind of feeling and how much of it is well, it doesn't sound from what you're talking about, like there's a much of sort of, we need to explain this stuff or we need to educate before we can get to the action-based part of the consultancy and the product design. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question because, I mean, we just looked at, you know, I think it was like 35 or 34% of the largest companies in the world. And then we were trying to figure out, you know, how many are on track to meet their net zero targets that they had uh, communicated. And I think it was like only 7% or something mm-hmm. were actually set to hit those targets. So I think there's a lot of really great intentions. And I think we're finding that a lot where brands are coming to us and they're like, we have this like really cool sustainability initiative. And then they tell us and we're like, oh, okay. Like we want to capture that energy and we want to put it somewhere else. You know, like let's just direct that because it's awesome that there's a team that cares about this. You know, they're trying to do their research and you know, they're just not experts in it. And so that's where we come in and say like, okay, 
that's cool and a great like marketing strategy, but let's like make sure that we have the actual data behind that to support that. And <laughs> a lot of times it's like very minimal, you know, changes and we want big change, like as fast as possible, right? So I think it's it's kind of helping, trying to help them pivot in a direction where we're like, okay, maybe we can cut that out of the supply chain, or maybe we can make that local, or like let's figure out a decommissioning unit, or you know, there, there's different ways. So I think it's there's really good intention out there, and I think brands are just the difference is I think they're forced to care now because they those targets are out there. And now it's a situation, they put it out there in the universe, but now they need to deliver. And I think with more and more people caring and it's becoming more of the norm to have to be greener and more sustainable, I think that's the difference. Like I think there's really good intent, but it's just maybe misdirected at this point Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and edging towards the greenwashy, which we obviously want to avoid because I think people get really excited about certain things and you're like, okay, but that product is like glued together. It's like fused together. How can we recycle that? You kind of can't. And like, what it, what does that look like if you're a recycling facility? And is it a niche material that no one can recycle? Or are there are just so many things that I think just aren't necessarily in their minds because they're a marketing team or they're just trying to help sell their product. And we just want to make sure that it's data behind the statements, I think mm. is definitely key. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I'm hearing what you're saying. And do you get then, or have you seen, or do you think there's a, a kind of a shock factor a little bit like, Hey, we've got this wonderful thing we want to do, but then sort of reality hits and you're saying, saying, okay, well, you know, let's look a little bit deeper here and if there's a more systemic, deeper problem, or is there a kind of like, what are the barriers that you need to help them push through at that kind of point in the conversation? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think just an example of like the New Balance cap that we did work with, I think there were like 18 different materials and we worked with them to make sure it was mono material so that it could just all be recycled in one place. And I think that kind of conversation, like people are definitely open to it. One of our other main projects was how I kind of entered Pentatonic. We did a a research paper, or it started out being a research paper, and then it became this entire platform called Hey Fashion for the Eileen Fisher Foundation, which was really exciting. So it was just a deep analysis, essentially, into textile waste in the fashion industry and what that looks like. And I think there were just so many conversations that we had with people where it was just and myself included of like where your stuff is actually going, you know, like let's, when we think about the end of life and when we're talking to fashion companies, it's like, okay, you know, where are your products ending up? And most of the time, like, I think the common perception is like, oh, that you donate them to your local charity shop. They're there. That's kind of it. Like that's kind of where you I mean, you're visually in front of the charity shop, you drop it off, like that's kind of the end of like where you think it's going, right? And I think for me, that was shocking to learn that like 80 to 90% is like being shipped to Ghana and just in a giant pile. And it's like, there are tons and tons of like wasted opportunities there, you know, like they're perfectly good clothes with holes in them or like cigarette butt burns. And, you know, people aren't going to use that in the charity shop, so they can't do anything with it. So like we just are outsourcing all of our waste. And I think those conversations are super tough to have because especially with fashion brands, it's like they're trying to be profitable, obviously. (laughs) And so um, trying to 
promote, you know, the most sustainable materials and making sure you're designing with the end of life in mind, like all these things are just expensive. So I think those conversations are super difficult because it's this, you have the intention of doing good and you want to have repair and resell platforms. But then, you know, if you're pumping out millions of clothing a year, then is that actually helping, you know, in the end? And so I think those are the really tricky conversations of like, they just have to change their business model essentially, right? You can't continue this constant outpouring of polyester clothes and all these other different blends and expect to be a circular company, you know? So that it's like those things are really tough because brands are set in their systems and it's really tough to change. Or, you know, if you invest in something that's 10 times the price, but it lasts a hundred years versus you know, a bunch of cheap things you have to replace all the time, those numbers are really hard because the budget is this and it's for this amount of time. So like it's a different department, you know, there's just all these intricacies of companies yeah. that are the reality of the situation and the reality of capitalism. And so it's tough, you know, a lot of times like they might like the idea of it and the individual people on the team love it, but the actual implementation element of it is really tricky. It's hard. And yeah, I think that's kind of what we're coming up against is that pressure to achieve your capitalistic goals, but also function in a circular space. So it's really, it's a hard balance. You've touched on like so much. And I think what I want to draw out of it is the sort of like levels at which we can make change that you've sort of mentioned. So that thing of, okay, these products can be designed differently so that they are easier to recycle or more efficient to use, you know, if they're modular or whatever. That's like a, a level way at which you can change. And then there's that level as like, okay, oh, when we're thinking about this, are we thinking about, you know, greenwashing or are we thinking more in terms of like business models changing, et cetera, you know, like actually having a business system in which we are making sustainable circular change and then there's that level of like hold on a second <laughs> does it matter if our business models have changed if like the sort of overarching goal in general is still that like capitalist drive to just make money by selling lots of products the systems take comes on the top of everything you know totally and it's interesting i think within just the fashion space just because I mean, we've been looking into resale kind of systems and repair and everything. And I do think there is this kind of movement we don't need to consume all the time, always. You know, I think there's kind of with these rental systems in place that are starting to pop up. And I think it's about making it more affordable, right? Like if we're talking about capitalism and like you want to be a sustainable person, you want to purchase like the best quality material. It's just 18 times the price. Like it's really tough to do that. But if you have, you know, a rental option that you can have that dress or that jacket for two days or like if it's a special event, you have that dress for two days versus owning it. I think these kind of, especially with like Airbnb, Uber, this kind of sharing economy stuff is bubbling up like I think there's I mean even just myself like moving to London like having access to like a lot of thrift shops or you call them charity shops <laughs> and things like that or just like resale platforms I think just on your phone are super easy to buy secondhand now and you don't have to necessarily go into a store and and buy and buy and buy and buy you can have that kind of 
adrenaline kick of owning something new, but it's like pre-loved, right? So I think that there kind of is this movement to that. I think it's a very slow movement because the the regulations and, and things I think can help kind of accelerate that. And that is still in motion for a lot of sectors. But I think it's a tricky one, right? Because I think just for fashion specifically, I just think of like Xi'an and all of these massive corporations that just have clothing for two pounds or it's free. You know, there I've seen some sales that they have where it's just essentially free product that they're giving away. And it's like, okay, people are literally dying. <laughs> like the social elements are ridiculous. But then it's also just the materials like they've had tests done on them and they're like carcinogenic, you know, properties in them that are in like baby clothes. And so I mean these systems are just problematic and i think people are now like all these you know news cycles that are releasing information that like oh this is really bad quality it's actually terrible for your health it's terrible for the environment it's terrible for people creating it i think the more and more we have those kind of stories come to light and i think people are they have that initial Ugh, like oh no i don't want to be a part of that system but then i think a lot of times they don't know where to direct it i think that's an issue. I feel like even just saying that, I'm like, it's not the consumer's fault, you know, like it's not our fault that that's how the system is set up. And so that's why brands have so much power. So it's been interesting, like with the Eileen Fisher Foundation and learning about Eileen Fisher, the brand and her take back system and how she is very careful about not, you know, having seasonal things. She wants, you know, basic pieces that can last forever. And I think she's been a very iconic person in the fashion space. And I think she's, you know, really led the way and been a great example of thinking about recycling 10, 15 years ago when it was not popular, you know? <laughs> so I think that's been really interesting to see. So there are these like examples of people and brands doing really great things, but as you said, there's just like the layers to it because it's like you have a small win in one direction. And then at the same time, you're like, ah, like this is maybe not the best you know? so there's the constant internal battle i find i feel like as long as we're pushing in the right direction and trying to get even small wins even like one material being replaced or not using glue or uh, a lacquer or something so you can recycle it like those small wins add up over time right so that's why i have to keep in mind that's what i tell myself <laughs> I'd love to come back, by the way, and make sure we talk about that work you did in the Hay Fashion. But just a quick observation there. Well, you sound like a really positive person, which is awesome. And you're obviously doing work that you're really passionate and care about, which is inspiring. But I wanted to sort of tease out a little bit more about what you said there. So you're talking about these overwhelmingly big, very challenging problems. But it's so important for us not to get lost in the problem, right? So maybe talk a little bit more about what you were saying there, about not just the, hey, there's this little incremental things that we can do, but what's your sort of driver? What is the thing that keeps you smiling and keeps you excited about, well, here's the potential and here's the, the, the direction and end point that I'm actually moving towards? I think it's really very satisfying to meet with a team and kind of present the data back to them in a way that's like helpful and beneficial to them. So if we say like, okay, this is your goal, this is the the product that you have, if you changed this or if you did this small shift, like that could be this much in carbon savings or that can help you achieve your goal in this way. Or I, I think it's just that because people 
want kind of just circling back to the beginning, people I think genuinely want to do good and they want to help and give back and they don't want to be working with a brand who is associated with all these negative things. And so I think their people in the company are trying to find their place and want it to align with their values. So when they hear something like the Burger King thing, I'm like, oh, they need trays out of the waste that's creating that kind of that connection. I think people realizing First of all, you're just not thinking about waste. Like you don't think about where your stuff goes after you use it. And so I think being able to kind of show people, first of all, we don't have to have that be waste in the first place. We can like, let's reuse it in a different way or like, let's keep it in your business. I think that kind of sparks an excitement in them to see like, oh, okay, we don't have to waste that. Like that makes sense. And so I think it's just those little, those kind of aha moments that you see in people that they get really excited of just learning about what our work is in this space, you know, because it's just kind of becoming a thing that people are noticing and care about. Even when I hear the word waste, I'm like, oh, that's so cringy. Like just the word itself, it's like, it sounds icky. It sounds bad. You just think of, you know, the rubbish outside and it smells weird. But like, let's think of that as like a resource. Let's not think of that as waste. And like seeing the potential in something I think is the exciting part to me and then explaining that to clients like let's not waste this like really beautiful sweater like let's give this another life like someone else might want that you know like let's figure out how to be more of a community because i think i mean kind of going back to that sharing economy like if i don't need a screwdriver 300 days of the year but then we can all share that let's do that let's be more of a community and less of an isolated group that just i don't know someone's enslaved in like China for making this item and then we use it for two seconds and chuck it in the bin like there's you know there's just a better way to do things but it's hard to stay positive when you look at all the numbers to be honest it's definitely overwhelming and there are days where I think everyone's like okay (laughs) I think that's probably a big win for me one of the places where my heart sinks the most like where it's hardest to stay positive is the fashion industry because it's something that touches all of our lives in one way or another And it seems to hold this like huge amount of power and influence in the world. And yet, you know, the amount of waste, as you said, that comes out of that system is just obscene. I think just exploring like just the images of these piles of clothing in Ghana and then speaking, we had a lot of interviews that we did throughout the Hay Fashion paper just because we really wanted to make sure we were getting you know, all of our information from the people who are actually in the space. And so, yeah, just listening to their stories of having to pay for these massive bales that they receive before they can even open it. And then they open these huge packages and then it's essentially just like moldy clothes or, I mean, clothes that are just disintegrating, you know, they're not even able to resell them and they're yet purchasing these for the intention of resale in Ghana, but it's just essentially wasted money because the people shipping them, like they're not thinking about that person who's at the other end. So I think that was just a really disheartening thing to realize. And I think it it definitely shocked me into, you know, there are so many amazing clothes that are secondhand. Why am I spending money on this thing that I might wear for like two months? There's like absolutely no purpose. So I think just in myself, and I'm not saying that like everyone has to do that and it's a bit drastic, but I think at this point for me, I was like, we have to be drastic. Like this is ridiculous. Like I don't want 
my stuff that I wore to end up in Ghana or Chile in a landfill somewhere. Like this is, and especially the stuff they were getting, it was like winter jackets, extra triple XL. I mean, this guy who we were interviewing was like, Ghanese people are not triple XL. It's sunny here all the time. Like we don't need your winter clothes. Like just that, that kind of his frustration and just his, just, oh, he was so, I don't even know the words right now, but like he was just shocked, I think, at how people are completely oblivious and completely unaware that this is happening at all. And I mean, I didn't know about it until writing this report. So I think that was kind of something that we tried to do, you know, these Instagram reels and really have a presence on LinkedIn and just try to get as much information out as possible. I think it's just that shock value of like, you know, think about all the clothes you've had in your life and where they all end up. And I think even just telling friends about it in the States and they're like, no, I, I donate, like I'm doing a good job. And it's like, I love that. And we should keep donating. We shouldn't not donate, but like making sure that the clothes are good enough to donate, pretend that you're giving it to someone else, not just an excuse to like get it out of your house. I think there are so many moments of writing that report and just being appalled at the situation and just desperate to like get people to care and to know about it. Cause you're right, Emily, like people touch this space. Everyone wears clothes. We have to consume to keep ourselves warm in the winter if we want to go skiing. But like, let's look at renting that jacket instead of owning it. It's just in your closet. These kind of things, which to me seem like very little adjustments, like, okay, you just rent it or you just buy it secondhand, like easy. But I think when you're in this constant culture of everyone buying things around you all the time, it's hard to not get wrapped up in that. So yeah, it's tough. It's really, really hard mm-hmm. stuff. You had interviews in Ghana and wrote a whole report. Was it based just on like the system in Ghana or was it like a a broader look at things? No, it was very broad. I just, that was one of my favorite examples just because that was so shocking to me. So that was one of my favorite things to write about in the report, just because we mostly focused on the environmental factors and not so much the social elements, just because it was already a massive report. And we wanted to, if we're going to really go into the social implications of the fashion industry, it would take another report, you know, more and more and more interviews. So we really wanted to highlight textile recycling and we touched on resell and different options as well. But I think textile recycling was really the main focus. We really wanted to make sure that if someone is looking at this report for the first time, you know, what text recyclers already exist in this space, like can I go to them? So we have like a, a whole chart of like different recyclers and what they're recycling. So like chemical recyclers versus mechanical recyclers, and then explaining what that means and then explaining, because a lot of people don't know, there are tons of blends in different you know, shirts, that kind of thing. And that makes it really, really hard to recycle. Again, kind of going back to that education, like if you're a designer and you're coming to this space and you just want to design cool things, like let's design it with just cotton or cotton polyester because that's easy to chemically recycle and mechanically recycle. So just kind of walking through that. We tackled a lot in this paper. It was, you know, how do we help brands? How do we help designers? How do we help, you know, if you're in government, you know, what are some of the regulations that are already out there? We really wanted this to be a space for everyone to come to and just be like, I'm a consumer, what can I do? Or I'm a designer, what can I do? Or I'm in policy. What are examples that I can look at to really kind of improve this space? So we tried to interview government officials and just nonprofits that are doing really great work and then the textile recyclers as well. 
So that was, yeah, super exciting to just like sit down with them for an hour and just learn about <laughs> shipments they've gotten and how it's super hard to be a textile recycler because you have so many upfront initial costs. And I think now you're starting to get movements where brands are starting to reach out to them and that's great, but it's just takes a lot to make a recycling plant. I think the energy and focus hasn't necessarily been on textile recyclers. So we're trying to shed a light on like all the good and hard work that they're doing because we really need them. There are so many things we need to do, but they can help get us out of this mess a bit. So we're trying to help them have some of the spotlight. I really like what you're describing there, sort of very broad, systemic look at all the different moving parts, including what you were just saying. And so you talked about the report, like sort of an output, but you're also talking about a place where people can go and see actions and so on. And it's published online, right? So do you want to share a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So there is a website that we have. So it's hatefashion.org. Um, and that's where you can download the report. But then it's also a space that we have. I mean, we're, we're constantly adding things to it just based on feedback. We really want it to be a living, breathing website where people can go and check new headlines of different textile recycling headlines or different investments and things like that. We're continually updating it. So it's not you just go for the report. I think we really want to, I think we're going to try to add some new tabs on there. So keep an eye out. I don't want to spoil the fun. I would recommend visiting the website frequently because we do have a lot of cool things that we're going to add. So stay tuned. It's supposed to be a space where it's just for anyone and everyone to go to and learn more about the issue, but also be informed to hopefully be a change maker in your space because, I mean, we've been doing a lot of talks. Like it was in Istanbul for a sustainability talk. And it was just like looking around the people in this room, like, these people are making clothes every day. And if they took a couple of these principles that we suggested in the report and applied them, that could be substantial change. So it's really exciting. I think there's a hunger for this. And I think more and more brands are starting to look into this and really think seriously about circularity within their business. It's definitely, there are those tricky spots of like, okay, do we revolutionize our entire brand and stop producing as much? essentially, because that's the elephant in the room. Like you can be the best brand and produce the best quality things. But at the end of the day, if you're still producing massive quantities of things, that doesn't help keep things out of the landfill. Yes, totally. You touched earlier, you sort of shied away from using the word drastic change. And I think that you should unashamedly own that. And the kind of work with that and Hey Fashion and the work that Pentatonic does, it really is a powerful multiplier for change, right? And the only way we're going to get that change is by adding up all those little things to much larger systemic mm-hmm. change. We're kind of running out of time. There's one uh, sort of comment I wanted to make and then a final couple of questions, unfortunately. <laughs> but earlier in the conversation, you also mentioned the sort of broad range of skills in pentatonics. You're talking about engineers and material science and the research and the work that you're doing and everything and the product, which sounds like a really important and powerful broad skill set and types of people. And again, because we're thinking about systemic change. And from my point of view, that's a really important aspect. Like we come at this from a software technology angle myself. And so being able to say all these skills aren't in isolation, we don't work in our own little bubbles, but those skills can be really important when applied in the right place and as part of the right change. So, and I'd love to explore that more, but as I say, we're starting to run out of time. So final question for you, given the work and the Hey Fashion has gone live and the work that you're doing, What's next big and exciting things that you'd like to share? And then as part of that, for people who want to connect with you or find out more about Pentatonic, where do they go? Definitely. I mean, I think on that last point, we are in a period of growth. So if you're interested in in working for us, send us CB. Our URL is just pentatonic.com. Love to hear from you. And you can find me on LinkedIn. And yeah, 
My email is madison.wright at pentatonic.com. Any questions, happy to answer them. I think next for me has been really exciting to see more and more clients come on board. And right now I'm, I'm doing a lot of just project management and making sure that we're on track with all of our different projects because we have a good mix of product design as well as just the consultancy as we talked about. So what's next? I mean, there are going to be a lot of different products kind of coming onto the market in the next two to three years. So I think that's kind of where my head's at is just the product side. And my background has mainly been research. And so it's a very new space for me. So that's part of what I love about this company is just you're kind of thrown into all sorts of things (laughs) and you might not know everything about it, but you better (laughs) do your research and figure out what dip is. So I mean, most of my day is just figuring out new materials that our material engineer is telling me about and you know, what applications can they fit best in and how can we kind of scale these things and show brands and get them on board and get them excited about how it can apply in their cases. It's mostly going to be product design for me, which is exciting because again, it's working with engineers and understanding like the melting point of glass. And I am not a chemist. So trying to figure out all of that good stuff is definitely keeping me on my toes. That's been exciting. I love that element of kind of not knowing like every client brings a new project and a new industry, it seems. So it's a lot of learning for me. There's another report on the horizon. I would absolutely love that too. K-Fashion just really consumed my life for a long time. And I think it was super interesting just getting into the nitty gritty details of it and really feeling like an expert at the end, which is really great. I didn't I didn't know that that was where my career was going to take me. So I, I don't consider myself like a fashionista or anything. So it was fun to chat with our fashion designers and learn from them as well. So we'll see. Stay tuned. Check the website. Who knows? My, another report. We'll see. Brilliant, brilliant. Both challenging and exciting and inspiring. Just for people okay. listening, Pentatonic is P-E-N-T-A-T-O-N-I-C.com and HeyFashion, H-E-Y-Fashion.org. And please check them out. As usual, we'll put all the links into the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Madison. Really appreciate you sharing all of that. Yeah, of course. It was an honor to be here, guys. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Super fun. Thank you, Madison. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Happy Porch Radio. You can find past episodes, transcripts, and show notes at happyporchradio.com. You can also get in touch with us there and let us know what you think, or if you have any ideas or comments. Please rate the podcast, share, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. Thanks for listening. My name's Barry O'Kane. I founded Happy Porch, who fund and support this podcast. At Happy Porch, we do technology and software development for purpose-led businesses, and we're particularly excited about the role of digital as an enabler for the circular economy. If you're working on solutions to the big problems we face today, problems like climate change, biodiversity loss, and global inequality, then let's connect. Visit happyporch.com and get in touch. And I'm Emily Swaddle, podcaster, coach, facilitator, and storyteller. You can find me on my other podcast, The Carbon Removal Show. And you can find out more about that project and everything else I do at emilyswaddle.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter, All About Rest. If you're interested in anything I do, feel free to connect. You can email me on hello at emilyswaddle.com. Hold up. 